Well, we had we have been in first and second Peter since January 9th. And so now we move into uh, Malachi. So our, our desire and hope as leaders of the church is to give a well-balanced diet of Scripture to, to the body. And so that's why you'll notice that we go from an Old Testament book to a New Testament book and back and forth and that sort of a thing. And so you'll notice, especially as we get towards the ends of, end of Malachi, that there some of the themes between Second Peter and Malachi are actually really similar. And some of the lessons that we're hearing and we'll be learning again, we'll be learning again because it's some of the same stuff. So turn in your, in your Bible to Malachi. Malachi is a short, deep, but probably largely unread book in scripture. I won't ask how many of you have read it before, but there's a good chance that many of you haven't. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about some overview and some introductory stuff this morning. It's only four chapters long, as you'll notice, only 50 something verses, I think in total, but it covers important topics like love, marriage, divorce, faithfulness, tithing, justice, corruption and leadership, spiritual apathy. It actually talks about John the Baptist talks about the coming of the Messiah, and it talks about the day of the Lord. It covers a lot of things. Now, the background of Malachi is very similar to the background of like Haggai and Zechariah, except it's, it's worse. Things are, are worse off. And there's no definitive date in the writing of Malachi. I saw dates anywhere from 500 B.C. all the way up through 400, 397 BC. So there's some kind of debate. We're not exactly sure exactly when it was written. Some scholars believe that Malachi was a contemporary. He lived at the same time as Nehemiah, as Ezra. And some people think that this book, Malachi, was written while Nehemiah was in Persia around 430 BC. Uh, there's references in Malachi to things like the temple or, you know, the, the priesthood. And so there's some evidence that that stuff had been reinstituted after captivity in Babylon. And so that gives us some clues as to the date. I think that uh, what Malachi addresses as far as the spirit, spiritual condition of the people of God are very similar themes to what Ezra encountered and Nehemiah. Those guys were... Uh, 458 BC, 544 BC, 444 BC for Nehemiah. And so we're not totally sure when it was written. And that matters because of what's going on in the world at the time. But we're not totally sure as what it's written, when it was written. But we know that the people of God are not in a real great state when Malachi was written to them. So this would have been somewhere around a hundred years after they had returned from captivity in Babylon, okay? So somewhere 80 to 100, maybe 110 years there. So they're back home in their land, but things aren't really going well. And they haven't been for a while. Jerusalem is still pretty well deserted. The other nations, peoples living around them, didn't really like them, didn't really want them there, didn't want them to come back. The land that they're trying to cultivate and living on is, is pretty well barren. 
It's uncultivated a lot of times. There's poor harvests. There's evidence of, of a pestilence of like locusts that's attacking the crops in the book. The building of the temple, it was done, but it didn't even hold a candle to the one that Solomon had built. And so they're, they're kind of bummed out about that. The walls around, remember they were, they were torn down and then Nehemiah had a hand in helping build those back up, but it seems like people would still rather live out in the country, not in the city. And so there was some convincing to try to get them to come back to the city. They didn't have a king. They had a palace, but they didn't have a king. They, they kind of had a royal line. Zerubbabel was there, but uh, they were living in a poorhouse, basically. Um, the, the Persian ruler, the governor over them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow them to have their own king. They wouldn't allow a Jew to reign. And so they're very far removed from the kingdom of David, right? From what it looked like when David was on the throne, the pinnacle of power and authority and progress and innovation and wealth and success and God's blessing. They're a long cry from that. Now they're just, there's a little hill town amongst a bunch of other little hill towns. There really wasn't a lot of special, anything special about them. And you can imagine the people being frustrated, disappointed. They're looking around, they're remembering the promises of God, and they're saying, hang on a second, that doesn't look like us. That doesn't sound like what we're going through. And they were beginning to be disappointed, disillusioned, even despairing. And maybe they're beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Is all of this stuff worth it? In fact, I mean, they've been back for a hundred years. So where's, where's this wonderful, blessed kingdom that God had promised them? They'd rebuilt the temple after coming back from exile. They'd reinstated temple worship. But Israel was looking around and wondering, why? Why are we still marginalized? Why are we still the least of these? Why are we insignificant compared to the national powers of the day? Maybe they're asking, what has become of God's great promises to exalt us and to punish those people around us? It's been a hundred years. Where's, where's the supremacy of Israel among the nations, they're asking? Where's the coming of our conquering king? Where's the judgment on these heathens who have oppressed us for so long now? Where's the peace and prosperity that we've been promised? Where are all these things? They're wondering. What was the normal everyday life in Malachi's time was not the kind of life that anyone in Israel expected. Instead, they were experiencing economic hardship, poor harvest, destitution, frustration, promised abundance, look at what we've got. And so this kind of despondency and depression caused them to ask that question, maybe a serious question, maybe it's a question that you and I have asked before when it comes to walking with the Lord and believing His promises. And it's that, why bother? Why bother with all of this? this my life is not does not look like I thought it should. It's not matching up. It looks very little like the life that I had dreamed. So if God isn't affecting my life in the way that I think he should, why should I bother? And that was the question ringing in the Israelites' ears. Frustration, 
discontent and it led them to complacency and emptiness. And this indifference, this apathy resulted in big time problems in their spiritual lives. And this is the thrust of Malachi's writings. Now the good news is they're not seeking after other gods like they had before. They're not being led into other religion worship necessarily. That's not really what God addresses in the book of Malachi. The bad news is that their religion had become a formality. They went to the temple. They made sacrifices. The priests fulfilled their duties day in and out. But they did these things in such a way that they became disgusting to God. It was ritual without reality. Turn to to Malachi, the first chapter. Verses 11 through 14. This is just a section to illustrate what's going on. Chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. See, this is just a taste, if you will, of of what's going on in the people. Now, if you don't know God very well, you may come away from reading that, especially verse 11, and think that he is just some arrogant and egotistical maniac. Some people come away with that impression of him. But when you understand who God is, and what you, when you understand what Paul says about God in Acts chapter 17, he says, God made the world. He's, he's talking to, to the men in the temple, and he's, he's saying, hey, look, I see this unknown God here. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Here he is. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And listen to this. Paul says this in Acts 17, verse 26. He says, He has even determined every person's time and place in the history of the world. He's determined their steps, where they're going to live, their dwellings, he says. That's God. And if you understand God that way, well, then you start to understand that he actually does have a claim on worship, right? He says, My name will be great, He's not being egotistical. He's being truthful. If it's the truth, it's not arrogance. He's saying, I I am the best. And he's proving it in these times. But you know what? In our dark days, like Israel was going through, that truth can be really clouded, right? Now, it's still true. It's just that the clouds cause us to forget what's beyond them. If we're not careful, it can cause our perspectives and our attitudes to be really altered and affected so for israel the question shifted from well what 
What is it that God requires of me to walk in obedience and relationship with him? It shifted from that to, well, what's the bare minimum that I have to do to get God off my back? You see the problem with that? Have, have you guys ever had a job where you worked with someone who only did the bare minimum? Hopefully that's not you, but I think we've probably all been there. I've experienced this before in the jobs that I've had, and it can be really frustrating, borderline angering sometimes. For somebody, or maybe kids, maybe it's a class project or a group that you're supposed to do something with, and one person is just letting you do all the work. They only do what's just enough to maybe not get in trouble. To, to not get in trouble by the boss or by the teacher. Just enough to get by. This was the whole nation of Israel. And it was kind of seen clearly in the priests. They said, well, what's the minimum sacrifice? And you, you saw from the text that we read, they were taking animals that had no business being offered unto the Lord and offering to the Lord. Because they didn't think it was a big deal. Their priorities were out of whack. They had a false view of God. What's the minimum sacrifice? What's the minimum offering and tithe that I have to give? What's the minimum amount of time I need to spend on spiritual things? These kind of questions sound familiar. The people of God, they'd had their home restored. Yeah. But they didn't see God's promises fulfilled in their lifetime with their own eyes. And so doubt began to well up. Frustration began to show. Dejection and indifference began to settle in on the people. And not only did it affect their spiritual life, but when you get apathetic about that, about your spiritual life, it'll affect your moral life as well. I heard a pastor Say, when you start saying, why bother with God, it's not long before you'll start asking the question, why bother about being godly? When one generation says, why bother about God, the generations that follow ask, why bother about being good at all? Guys, we're living there now. Being apathetic towards God had a devastating effect on the Israelite families. And we see this in later chapters. The question became, why be faithful to God? Or it, it was, why be faithful to God? And soon became, why be faithful to my wife? And the men of Israel in particular are rebuked for marrying outside of the Jewish nation and for mistreating the wives of their youth, if they're called, or breaking their covenant. See, between two people, it's kind of a contract, right? But when God's in the mix, the third party is a covenant. And marriage is like that. Marriage is a covenant, not just with your spouse, but with God as well. And they had broken this. I hope that we'll see, if we haven't already, that there's, there's a slide. And sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's quick. But there's always a slide and a progression towards indifference when we don't know God for who he really is. You can see times were tough in these days in Israel. And when times are hard, what do we like to do? Blame somebody else, right? When times are difficult, it's never our fault. So we blame our spouse for not treating us the way that they should. 
Or maybe we blame our parents for not raising us right. Or best of all, we can blame the government, right? They're a good scapegoat. And maybe in sometimes it's fitting. But we always try to point the finger. Israel wasn't living with the kind of government we have now, and so they couldn't blame them. They weren't willing to blame themselves either. So guess who they blamed? It's the one that we oftentimes end up blaming ourselves. God. God doesn't love us. That's clear based on where we are, right? They looked around and they saw they were just a little village amongst a bunch of other little villages. They had, they had no reputation. They were mistreated and they said, God loves us. Yeah, right. Why should we love him? If God hasn't loved us, why should we love him? And that's kind of where the whole book begins in verse two talking about the love of God. But the way that Malachi is written, it's, it matches a lot of Old Testament prophetic um, prophets, minor prophets specifically, it kind of follows the same order, but it's done in a really unique way, almost singularly unique. It's, it's written in dialectic method. And I just learned that word this week. But basically, instead of coming right out and stating a truth, or a conclusion, this method just kind of asks a bunch of questions to make the conclusion so obvious that the learner or the hearer figures it out on their own. Okay? So it's almost like this self-contained conversation in Malachi that it, the, the point is to cause the lesson to really stick because all of these questions are asked to the point where you're like, oh, okay, the answer is obvious. The conclusion is really clear. So now I've figured that out myself, and so it, it sticks. And so in Malachi, it kind of consists of a statement followed by an objection, followed by another answer. Look, look at chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, just as an example of this. Chapter, there's several of them. I just picked this one because it was kind of the shortest. But chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Here's the statement. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So that your words have been hard against me, that's what the Lord is hearing from the people. That's the statement. Here's the objection. But you say, how have we spoken against you? So that's Israel's response. Well, what do you mean about that? How have we spoken against you? Here's a conclusion from the Lord, verse 13 and 14. You said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so you can see here, we've got a statement, an objection, and a conclusion or an answer. Malachi is a book of questions. In the first chapter, there are ten questions. In the second chapter, there are seven. And in the third chapter, there are six. Many of these are rhetorical, asked by the Lord of the people. And we see all over the first three chapters especially, we see this question. You can just scan through and see the question, but you say, helps us understand God's aware of their objections, of what they're saying, of what uh, he's, he's hearing. And he has an answer for them even before they speak it to him. These are just thoughts rolling around in their heads or in their hearts. So we need to make no mistake here. 
God knows what's going around in our heads and hearts too. And He can answer us the same way. Whether it's a difficult time in our life and we are tempted like Israel to say, why should we love God? It doesn't seem like He loves us. And then God answers back. He says, well, hang on a second. Let me explain to you how I've loved you. And that's what He does in verse 2 and following. These are indictments from God to the people of Israel. That's a formal charge. That's an accusation. He's saying, well, hang on a second. And the key indictment against Israel, as we've mentioned before, is just their hollow, formal, and really corner-cutting worship and admiration of God. And what happens when you get apathetic in your spiritual life, we've already said, it makes you apathetic and it will affect your moral life as well. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 10. Malachi gives us an example of this. When doctrinal truth is acknowledged, have, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So that's true. Those are things that the people recognize. That's doctrinal truth that is acknowledged here. And yet in chapter 3, verse 5, we see that that did not play out in their, in their relationships among the people. Love for your neighbor was neglected. It affected the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. affected those who were sojourners in the land. They did not fear me, says the Lord of hosts in chapter 3, verse 5. God, through the author here, is calling out the priests in these verses, in these chapters. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. You've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Answer, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Do you see the problem here? The priests are showing us another effect of of spiritual apathy that turns into moral apathy. It also, I would maybe say, turns into theological apathy. The priests who are supposed to be teaching God's word in clarity and truth are now twisting it, just like we saw in Second Peter. They're saying, everyone who does evil in, is good in the sight of the Lord. No. When has God ever called evil good or good evil? If he was willing to do that, if he was willing to call what's evil good, why did Jesus go to the cross? If it was as easy as that, why did Jesus need to die? Why did he leave heaven at all if that was the case? Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, you might, this might have jogged your memory when we read that verse. He says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God never calls evil good, brothers and sisters. These priests were distorting and misrepresenting truth and God wasn't going to have it any longer. Malachi's warning is this. Kids, this is what you need to listen to. Adults, this is what we need to listen to. Here's the warning. Stop going through the motions in the Christian life. It's easy. And I'm thankful for the routine that we have, many of us have on Sunday mornings. You know Saturday night, you don't stay up until 3 a.m. because you've got church in the morning, right? We want to give God our best in our time of worship. And so there are good routines that we get into, but they can, if we're not careful, just end up going through the motions. 
And so Malachi, this book is full of hard things that confront our wayward and sometimes hard hearts. But it's also a book of great hope and promise. The truth is, as he'll say towards the end, that judgment is coming. And it's sure, but even the great name of the Lord will be praised. You can be confident of that. Verse 11, we've already read it several times. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be praised among the nations. Verse 14 of chapter 1, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Guys, the, the name of the Lord will be exalted. And what Israel forgot and what we often fail to see sometimes is that God is gracious in helping us to worship him properly now, whenever and wherever we are in the world. God has given us instructions on how to worship him. And like any good parent, he disciplines, he calls out and he points out and he disciplines his children away from wrong ways of thinking and wrong behavior and back to proper ones, right? That, parents, that's what we do. We don't discipline just because we like doing that. We discipline because it has a purpose. We're trusting God with that discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God does that for his people. In fact, it says there that if you aren't disciplined by the Lord, you are not his child. So though it's difficult to find comfort in discipline, we ought to. He's right to call out our pride, right? He's right to call out our indifference. He's right to call out our apathy or our going through the motions. There are consequences for those things, yeah, but the fact that God disciplines his children actually proves his genuine love for them. Even when God and his love feel sometimes very, very far away. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 16. There's evidence here that there was a remnant in Malachi's day who did in fact fear the Lord, it says. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Look at verse 17. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Did you notice the other term? He says they're mine. Did you notice the term of endearment that he uses about them? Debbie's wearing a shirt with the word on here. Cherished possession. Cherished girl. Treasured possession. God's people are his treasured, cherished ones. These, this, this remnant, these group of Christians in Israel, they were determined to trust the Lord no matter what, no matter how the situation looked like on the surface, what their eyes were telling them. They were determined to trust the Lord. And that's, that's the same message we need to hear today. We need to cling to God and His promises regardless of what afflictions come our way. Physical afflictions. Culturally. Politically. Emotionally relationally, all of these things affect us. And they do. And It's not wrong to acknowledge them. But where do they drive us? Where do they drive us to? Do they drive us to faith and truth and trust in the Lord? Or do they drive us away from those things? So I think the curse and the fall, curse is a result of the fall, 
own participation in sin affects all aspects of our life. But hearkening back to Second Peter and the end there, we need to remember that the coming restoration will redeem all of those areas of life. Every physical pain you have will be gone when Christ returns or when you go to meet him in person. All of the, the relational struggles, all of the, the, the political issues of our day, none of those things will matter. None of those things will be present. We will see this incredible restoration that Peter's written about in Second Peter and also that Malachi writes about. And we'll see it played out in the person and work of Christ. And we have in his word. We see it. In him there's forgiveness of sin. In Him, there is reconciliation to God. In Him, there is new and eternal life. That's in Christ. And chapter 3, verse 17 says that those who fear His name and glorify Him are His treasured possession, His cherished people. Guys, He wants to make you His cherished, treasured possession today. He wants to bring you in through belief in Christ, repentance of sin, faith in Jesus. He wants to bring you in to be a part of that remnant. We're waiting for that day, right? Christ has not returned just yet. We're waiting for that day. We know it will be soon. How soon, we don't know. But while we wait for that day, we get to enjoy what Paul says is the down payment the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the coming deliverance from sin and death in its entirety. Look forward to that day. Now, in the coming couple of months or so, that's sort of the plan for preaching through Malachi. Take us to about the beginning of December where we'll kind of shift to Christmas, Advent things, but hopefully we're, we're finished with Malachi at that point. But in those next couple of months... We're going to be confronted with a couple of questions that might ring in your ears. Does it matter how I worship God? What if I don't give God my best? How do I battle against spiritual apathy? Right? Because there's a good chance that we've taken on some of those traits of just going through the motions of coming. How are you doing? Just great. Do your thing, sing your songs, listen to the message, go home and live the rest of your life. And this is what Malachi corrects, or God through Malachi corrects in his people. Don't go through the motions. Hold on. Think about what's going on. And know this. God loves you enough to tell you the truth about your sin. If there is apathy in your heart towards God, or maybe just towards life in general, be listening in these next couple of months to what God has to say. Because he's, gonna, he's a truth teller. Through his word, he'll tell us the truth about our sin. But he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to remain in it. Right? Think about the woman caught in adultery. How he came and he forgave her sin, didn't he? But what did he say? Go and sin no more. He forgave it, but she wasn't to remain in it. Brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. God forgives our sins. Author of Psalms says, as far as the east is from the west, never to meet, never to see again. And yet we're not supposed to remain in it. 
And he loves us so much that he'll correct us out of it. And I think Malachi will demonstrate just how God goes about doing that. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to make a point to be here for these next eight weeks or so and hear what Malachi, God through Malachi, has to say. There are rebukes to specifically Israelite things and people. You're not bringing goats and bulls for me to offer or Jason to offer here as pastors. We don't do that sacrificial system anymore. But we can't, don't get so caught up in some of those details that we miss what Malachi means for us. So I challenge you to make a point to be here and to come not just going through the motions, but asking these questions, how can I give God my best? Both in my time and where my mind is at as we worship and with my finances, with my family, with everything. How can I give God my best? Let's pray. Lord, that really is our genuine hope. And, and prayer. Lord, you're going to have to move that in us. Uh, it's clear that the Israelites were guilty of some pretty serious offenses of robbing God of not just material things as far as sacrifices and offerings go, but of worship as well. And so, Lord, we have a view of you that I pray is being rounded out here as we preach and as we learn in Sunday school and our small groups and as we walk with you on a daily basis and are trained and instructed by the Spirit. Our understanding of of you is fuller and fuller and made more and more complete as as we learn. You have some things to say to us here, some hard things. I feel that myself, and so I pray for my brothers and sisters that even now, that you are, are softening, that you are working to open our ears so that we might hear the truth of what your word has to say. There are things for us to learn in a manuscript that th- that's thousands of years old because your word is active and alive and like a surgeon's scalpel, it cuts through to the very heart of what you know we need. And so I pray that you would do that, Lord, in our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.